Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the Conservative rebels planning to stop Boris Johnson's planned cut to aid spending. And you ask us, does it matter that Boris Johnson is Catholic? So we're recording today before we know whether the Speaker has ruled uh, to include an amendment to restore the 0.7% spending on UK aid in the Commons this afternoon. But the bigger story is that there are at least 30 Tory MPs who would back the amendment if, if it did go to a vote. And this rebellion says a lot about how the Conservative Party is divided on this issue, but also broader issues as well, isn't it, Stephen? Yeah, there are there are lots of reasons why we're doing this now and not after, not least, our deadlines. But I think actually it's one of those things where, you know, whether or not it is ruled in scope, which is genuinely, I think, arguable either way, whether or not the government can convince enough people, oh, you know, there's a reshuffle around the corner and if you're good, you never know. The sort of the underlying issues don't go in. Now, this is some ways the perfect issue, right? Because broadly, the two groups of people who can defeat you if you're a prime minister are, and you have a majority are, backbenchers who disagree with what you're trying to do ideologically and backbenchers who dislike you personally. And in some ways, international aid is the perfect coming together of that because almost every sort of serious foreign policy thinker in the Conservative Party doesn't like the aid cut. They might dislike it because there are, this is how we show strength, this is how we stand up to, you know, if we don't spend more on aid, then China comes in and, you know, offers uh, countries loans they can't pay back and they, you know, do debt diplomacy and all of the stuff, um, you know, we were doing when we were saying our empire up and if we aren't there um, offering foreign aid, then, you know, we're, this yeah, runs against runs against the pillars of our China strategy and our Russia strategy. Yeah, so there's the the Britain as strength in the world. Then there you have you know the kind of more sort of people on the party's left going, this is money that goes to the world's poorest. You you, you can't possibly cut that. Sometimes, of course, expressed in a way that would make the average the median New Statesman reader. Uh, sort of understandably curl up and blanch. One of the rebels kind of said to me the other day, oh, you know, they said, well, it's, it's ridiculous what we're going to spend. We're spending, we're giving £30 extra a week for people who don't want to work. Not how I would characterise the UC uplift. Um, you know, yet we can't find a, a derisory amount of money for the for the world's poorest. All of those ideological objections, which obviously span the, the length of the Conservative Party, you have people who just don't like that it was a manifesto promise and they think the manifesto promise should be kept. And then you have people who dislike Boris Johnson. There are very few other issues, I think, where the first group, you know, the ideologically committed, is large enough for the people who dislike Boris Johnson to have any interest in sort of clubbing together with them. So I think in some ways this is a bit of an outlier vote, but it does speak to the bigger problem that 
it was only a couple of months ago that everyone was going, oh, you know, isn't Rishi Sunak's budget really brilliantly delivered? And clearly that's still the mood in the country. But the politics here in Parliament is starting to catch up with the policy. And I think that it is striking to say, given that this is the only mooted cut that commands plurality support, what is going to happen politically when the CSR goes, by the way, that very big number now splits into lots of very small numbers, but numbers which are tangible. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's the closest thing that we'll maybe get to a vote, if we have a vote on this. And I think that if, if it's ruled out of scope today, I think the rebels will just be hoping that they'll be able to find another opportunity to demonstrate their opposition and another vote down the line. But this vote, whether it happens today or months from now, I suppose is the closest thing that we've had to a kind of old-fashioned Tory party vote on the direction of Boris Johnson, a vote on Johnsonism, because there are other issues such as planning, which is really tearing apart the Conservative Parliamentary Party at the moment. There are lots of issues there where individual MPs and individual seats have different reasons for thinking that the planning rules would be disastrous for them personally and their constituencies. But this one, you know, sometimes people ask what happened to that, you know, big cohort of of Tory rebels before 2019, you know, whether there are any left, whether that spirit has remained, whether there are similar, you know, like-minded Tories still in the Conservative Party who were, you know, who have been recently elected. And I suppose this is like the, the best example or the best demonstration of that feeling that still exists, as you were saying, Stephen, ideologically and personally, because, it, I mean, it is a big chunk of these rebels are the sort of the Hunt Brigade. So like it's Jeremy Hunt himself and a lot of the people who would have supported him for the leadership and a lot of people who um, are particularly attached to the 0.7 aid target because they think that it represents the sort of the, the proudest legacy of the Cameron era and exactly the kind of conservatism that they would like to represent. So as you were saying, Stephen, you know, a lot of these people voting, you know, against this cut are would, you know, are in favour of austerity 100%, but see this, you know, from a sort of strategic point of view, foreign policy point of view, but also a moral point of view as as a, a big thing about their brand and it's a way of demonstrating that they don't like the direction um, as they see it under Boris Johnson. I think readers might remember months ago I interviewed Caroline Noakes, who's one of the very, very few remaining rebels who you know rebelled against the proroguing of, of Parliament and, and Boris Johnson's plans to go for no deal. She's one of the very few MPs to survive that purge who's still in the Commons, now as chair of the Women and Equality Select Committee. And she was talking about how there are lots of One Nation Conservatives, people like her within the party who who do worry about the direction of um, the Conservative Party under Boris Johnson. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people listening who think, well, what is that direction? Because there are so many conflicted promises. But things like abandoning this target that they're quite concerned about. And she was saying, you know, many months ago that they were identifying key battlegrounds for them to rally around and promote sort of Cameroon values, basically. And this was seen as the as the most important one. I think you'll probably not get a better example of that again, maybe in this parliament. It doesn't necessarily mean that the rebels would be able to win. But if you want to see 
who's concerned about Boris Johnson's leadership, I think this is the best indicator of it. Yeah, I think that's true. And also it kind of, it suggests something. Do you remember when um, Dominic Cummings and Lee Kane were sort of purged from Downing Street and we were discussing whether or not this would change the way that Boris Johnson and his operation would communicate and treat their MPs? And we were wondering whether sort of a softer approach, a less confrontational approach would mean that that they would have more hope of passing legislation like this if it goes to a vote or, you know, more generous spending on on, on various things rather than carrying on a, uh, the austere measures that actually Rishi Sunak ended up pursuing in his budget. Um, we were wondering whether or not they would be able to sort of heal the relationships and give the sort of bit of TLC and a, and a, and a shoulder to cry on and a listening ear to all of this coalition of MPs that Stephen, you, you laid out, um, who have been unhappy for different reasons. Um, and I think the fact that it's come to this, where we don't even, you know, the, the, the rebels at the moment, at the time of recording, don't even know whether they will be able to vote, but they are sort of building up their numbers, briefing the press, giving these interviews, making quite forthright statements about what the loss of this money has meant for the developing world. And, and you know, they're, they're willing to, rather than sort of giving number 10 the opportunity to reassure them behind the scenes, oh, it's just temporary, you know, we could perhaps we could write this into legislation that will go back to the 0.7% pledge once, you know, once the economy's, you know, on the path to recovery, for example, instead of giving them that that opportunity for reassurance and compromise behind the scenes, as has happened with, you know, in the past with other controversial bills. It, it's telling that, that that this has been the rebel strategy. I think the suggestion is that Boris Johnson, <laughs> despite the loss of do, do, the, the, the departure of Dominic Cummings and that more confrontational style, it shows that Boris Johnson hasn't learnt how to court the, the Cameroons and the the China hawks and and some of the sort of newer groups who are who are not satisfied with with the direction um, that the Conservative Party is going in. It shows that he hasn't managed to provide that reassurance. And I think you know <laughs> he's often praised as this great political operator, but there is still obviously a big gap there in being able to kind of court that th- those groups because while the Cameroons are often spoken about as this sort of spent force, they still have a lot of influence on the backbenches. They still have a lot of influence in the press as well, and they, they you know they're capable of making a very very loud noise when they when they want to. So. I think it, it's, it shows that he perhaps hasn't picked up on that um, and hasn't managed to communicate with MP or, or build those relationships and fix those, those ruptures with his own backbenches that we kind of thought that, that he, he would find it easier to do without Dominic Cummings there. I mean, I didn't wake up this morning expecting I was going to use the following phrase, but to defend Boris Johnson, I do actually think that if the vote lever operation was still in there, we wouldn't be going, oh yeah, they, they might lose this vote, it will be close. They, they would definitely, definitely have lost the vote back then because they have done mm-hmm. a good job at doing the sort of quiet side of the mouth of going, oh, well, we could guarantee them we would bring it back next year, although the Treasury is, is, is very reluctant to do that. Yeah, then, then this vote is, does in part reflect that they have improved that kind of thing. But I think the thing that is interesting and would sort of worry me in their shoes is that it's still not enough to fix their 2019 problem, right? You know, someone like, you know, Christian Wakeford, who's for a Conservative MP in this parliament has actually been quite loyal. And we forget that I think maybe it's as few as 20 Conservative backbenchers have now not have not rebelled in this parliament, but so someone like Christian Wakeford, who, who's been you know quite loyal, who's you know asked supportive questions, who's an MP for a marginal, who's some ways you know like the exemplar of a 2019 intake MP, has said he'll vote against the government on this. It's not just you know people like you know 
Anthony Magnell, who you know, used to used to yeah was a former special advisor, but you know now turned sort of maverick and serial rebel. One conservative whip joked to me the other day. They said, "Oh, you know, I preferred his earlier work. I, you know, when he was working for the government rather than rebelling against it all the time." The, the flip side is is the sort of unspoken sort of consensus behind everything we've said thus far is it is a bad thing for the government if they can't win this vote because it actually shows, oh, you know, what about the other controversial stuff they want to do? I I think in some ways, though, the reverse is true, right? Which is that when Rishi Sunak persuaded Boris Johnson to sign off this quite tight budget, which took a lot of work, a lot of energy, and then they had to, you know, really sort of do the yeah, the media management around it was exemplary as well, which kind of meant that only a handful of outlets in place went, uh, lads, have you noticed this quite big and scary number uh, in the budget book? One of the reasons why, you know, you know like the IFS did, the, yeah, basically went, yeah, we simply don't believe these cuts will happen because they're so painful. And lots of people, you know, kind of, yeah, the smart take at the time was to go, you know, Keir Starmer keeps saying this is the return of austerity, but what if they don't follow to type? Which, I mean, I think it is true that, that I think the government would be better off in a situation at the next election where it had been defeated on loads of cuts and most of them hadn't happened than it would be if it actually delivered anything close to what is envisaged in the budget as set out in March. And I think, in an odd way, if the government can win this vote, they can definitely win all of the other votes, right? Because, okay, there, there, there is a group of people who, who, who do really want more money spent on, on education, but there is no sort of big, ideologically coherent, well-organized, blessed with a respected former chief whip like Andrew Mitchell as, as a sort of central organizing node to lobby for more money for catch-up for COVID school funds. There, there, is, there is just no equivalently well-organized nexus as there is on, on international development in the Tory party. So if they do win this vote, this idea that, you know, lots of people, you know, lots of think banks have, of, oh, it doesn't matter, and that's a big, scary number because they won't be able to implement the big, scary number, I think won't be true, which then does mean that the political bet for this government becomes that there is a political and electoral appetite for that very, very tight spending round, which, I mean, maybe there is, but, you know, maybe there isn't. It's also maybe just um, worth... Um, adding as a final thought, just that a, a day like today where we're looking at a potentially big rebellion against the government is just a, a reminder that the days of Brexit are very much behind us because this vote might not happen. By the time people are listening, they will know whether this conversation has been redundant. This vote might, might not happen today and might not ever happen because it depends on the interpretation of the existing legislation on international aid and that target and whether it is within the Chancellor's gift to, to change it at, at his discretion in extraordinary circumstances. And there's certainly a government argument that he is free to just do that and he doesn't need us to have a vote on it. So the vote might never happen, but the government has such a big majority. This is probably the, the closest to a government defeat that we might see this parliament even then it's not that exciting. And we also have a very different speaker where the, the briefings so far today have been that Lindsay Hoyle, the current speaker, has not been massively impressed by the way that the rebels have run a, a sort of media campaign over the past few days, suggesting that they expect to be given a vote on this and that they'll have the, the numbers because he hasn't made his decision yet. And that's also very, very different to to the way John Burke ran things and, and how tight things were in Brexit votes. 
And it's just, I suppose, like a slightly boring reminder <laughs> that even when there's a big rebellion planned and it's very much hyped up, that a government with a majority this big, you know, doesn't need to worry so much about this kind of thing. And we're maybe all, you know, across, you know, within Parliament, among MPs, as well as everyone covering it, is probably still slightly in Brexit vote mode when we're in a slightly more predictable era of politics now. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. So our question today is from a while ago, but we've always meant to answer it. It's from David. He asks, how significant is it from a cultural or constitutional perspective that the UK seems to have furtively acquired its first Catholic prime minister? He asked that question on on the baptism of, of Boris Johnson's son at Westminster Cathedral. And obviously, Boris Johnson has been married since. Um, Alva, you were particularly interested in this question. What What's your take on it? Yes, yeah, so I think that David wins the prize for the best ever You Ask Us question. <laughs> um, because, yeah, as you say, Anush, he sent in this question after the baptism of baby Wilfred Johnson in Westminster Cathedral, which is obviously a Catholic cathedral. And there were reports, quite sort of muted reports that probably a lot of people will have missed around that time that Boris Johnson, who was baptised in a Catholic church, but who then I think had an Anglican confirmation and spent much of his adult life as an Anglican, is now a practising Catholic. Again, I think his godmother, who's also a Catholic, told some of the papers that. And he's now a, a regular congregant at Westminster Cathedral, along with Carrie Simons, who's also a Catholic. So David picked up on this before it became a big talking point after Boris Johnson and Carrie Simons' wedding, um, which was also in a Catholic church. It's only it's only then that other people were asking what the cultural and constitutional significance of it is when David was asking months ago. I mean, I think this is just such a good question because there clearly is a constitutional significance to it in that there are small areas of legislation where the the prime minister has an advisory role to the queen as the head of the Church of England um, around the appointment of bishops and so on, which he isn't able to do as a Catholic. And I think that that has, like, from from my understanding is that that has just been sort of brushed over. It's not super important. He's just not doing those things. But when you just take a long view of the history of this country and, you know, the history of the British Isles and how central, you know, the persecution of Catholics and that, that tension between Catholicism and Protestantism has been and the fact that really there is discrimination against Catholics still embedded in legislation here 
it is very significant. But I actually, I'm fascinated by Catholics in British politics, full stop. And, you know, notable ones like Jacob Rees-Mogg, a very prominent English Catholic, and then people like Rebecca Long-Bailey or John McDonnell have Irish Catholic roots and are still practising Catholics. And my less political interest in it is actually that I'm aware that Boris Johnson last summer, so after the first wave of COVID and after he had had his near-death experience in hospital, was reading Any Human Heart by William Boyd, in which one of the characters has, you know, led an, an adulterous and slightly sinful life. And towards the end of the book, he tells the main character that he is converting to Catholicism from Anglicanism because he wanted a less forgiving God. And that's a book that Boris Johnson was reading last summer after his brush with death and, and you know, having had a, you know, a turbulent personal life of his own. And it was suggested that Theresa May was actually the sort of the first de facto Catholic prime minister because of the kind of Anglicanism that she practiced. People found that kind of interesting at the time. But Tony Blair was also a convert to Catholicism when he left prime ministerial office. And I I wonder if um, there's something interesting on just a more personal level, the idea of having been prime minister and, you know, presided over these massively dramatic events in British political history that involved a significant loss of life in the cases of the Iraq war and the coronavirus response. And I've, I find it just really fascinating that, that both Tony Blair and Boris Johnson have returned to, you know, this idea of a harsher, less forgiving God. In the wake of those big events, that's maybe sounds like a bit of a weird thing to say, but it's also, I think, borne out a little bit by things that Tony Blair has said about the Iraq war. You know, he said that he would answer directly to God for his decision there. So I think aside from the big sort of constitutional thing, I think just as a a somewhat lapsed Catholic myself, I'm really interested in the sort of psychology of people's relationships to Catholicism. And I wonder, you know, if that, if there's a, a role there for that as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. What what struck me more about it as someone who isn't from, you know, that kind of faith background, shout out to my Armenian Orthodox brothers and sisters, um, was the sort of cultural difference between Boris Johnson's Catholicism and the faith that David Cameron kind of um, espoused when he was prime minister, which was very much, you know, the sort of, you know, I like going and singing carols at Christmas, you know, I'm a bit, you know, I'm a bit woolly on the detail, but you know, I, faith really matters to me and I love my, I love my local church. And, you know, that, that kind of, I think he, 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 um, he said that his faith comes and goes like the reception for Magic FM in the Chilterns or something, (laughs) something like that. And his kind of, but you know, that was sort of equally interesting and had an equal depth to it in the sense that he'd obviously taken the temperature of, of, of where people's Anglicanism was in the country and had kind of placed himself slap bang in the middle of it. Um, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure what he was saying was, was, was sincere, but it, it was, it was a very English expression of religion. Um, and obviously, you know, during his prime ministership, he was um, doing the gay marriage stuff. And that was probably one of the most prominent things that that he did in office. So, so it was a sort of big part of it, but very different from what you were saying, the, the grappling with life and death, as in the Iraq war and the coronavirus response as well. So perhaps that's also a reflection of 
you know, a different wavelength of, of, of politics at the time and the kind of priorities that, that were on his in-tray. And it does, it does kind of um, tie into the AIDS stuff as well, because a lot of the most vocal voices about keeping to the 0.7 commitment are Christian voices. The Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, David Cameron stuck by that pledge. And I remember speaking to civil servants at the time who was talking about the importance of, of DFID spending at the time, who were saying it was a it was a way of talking about England or, or the UK's role in, in the world morally when, you know, <laughs> when there had been so many poor foreign policy decisions that had led to such tragedy in different parts of the world. So, you know, if David Cameron was asked about Syria or asked about Yemen or asked about Libya, then he could say, oh, you know, we spend more than any other country or, or whatever. And he could talk about those that kind of record aid spending. So it's interesting how it ties in into that as well. But yeah, it's definitely, I think it definitely represents a sort of departure from that constructive willingness um, that David Cameron had. It is really interesting, not least because I always find it um, amusing in some So my my mum came to visit, uh, well, one of my mothers came to visit a fortnight ago, and we um, we went round Abney Park because my mum likes nothing more than the opportunity to talk about plants and the dead. And we found the memorial to people who died in Stoke Newington of the Blitz. And then, of course, what we did was we speculated about which ones of the dead may have been Jewish and which one of them may have been people who were related to people we knew vaguely. Because this is basically what religious minorities do, I realised. It's like, is so-and-so one of us. What I think is interesting about it is with Tony Blair, my strong understanding is that he was always a practicing Catholic in practice, as it were. It's just that they feared that politically you could not do that without inviting sort of various backlashes. And it is one of the really interesting ways that Boris Johnson is a symbol of so many ways we've changed as a society, right? That this is a man who brought his girlfriend, who had originally been his mistress, to meet the Queen, and no one cared. Which, I mean, I think is an unalloyed good thing, to be honest. But yeah, the, but that in of itself, and I think those, those two facts sort of need to be considered together. There visibly are still parts of the United Kingdom where Boris Johnson's Catholicism um, will be an electoral issue for the Conservative Party. And there are other parts of the United Kingdom where Boris Johnson's extramarital activities are an electoral issue for the Conservative Party and some places where both are an electoral issue. But I think it's part of how we've become a more tolerant country that neither of those issues are as high salience as they were. It's one of the really weird things about reading diaries from the early New Labour period is how much social sto- you know, social stories about what ministers got up to in the privacy of their own lives were covered in an incredibly purient um and just visibly um, to modernise unacceptable ways. And although this was a cause of personal distress to people in the government, this idea of, well, no, look, you're just not allowed to raise this because, you know, the re- your readers don't like it. This is not an OK way to behave. You know, it's completely new, right? You see this also with, say, Leila Moran, who um, was able to, you know, take control of a story about her sexuality in a way that simply wasn't available to Nick Brown in 1998 or another minister whose name escapes me and I am, for obvious reasons, not going to sit there and ask, so which ones of the new Labour era ministers were out then or are out now? But, you know, um, it it shows how much we've changed as a, a society in lots of ways. I think the thing which is really interesting about it is, barring a particular feat of fertility, when the census comes out, we will be a majority irreligious country 
for the first time. Yes, that is in the context of being a country where the sort of four fastest growing bits of the population are, you know, whether they be um, practicing black British Christians, British Muslims who are British Pakistani, British Bengali, or Haredi Jews are the yeah the fastest moving groups in the United Kingdom all also happen to be religious. But nonetheless, as an overall chunk of the population, religiosity is on the decline. And I think it's interesting how, in some ways, the fact that Boris Johnson's um, Catholicism is not considered an electorally resonant issue is part of the decline of religion in public life. It's particularly interesting from a Labour perspective because... Essentially, the Labour Party is its core, yeah, its actual core vote, as opposed to the imagined core vote some of its politicians would seem to like to have, are ethnic minorities and liberal graduates, i.e. the most religious part of the United Kingdom and the least religious part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, a majority of the visible ethnic minority groups in the, con- in the country are religious. Uh, and with the exception of the British Jewish community, they are all groups who a majority voted for the Labour Party at the last election, and according to the polls, will vote would vote for the Labour Party if the election was held tomorrow. And their other core are um, irreligious liberal graduates. Yeah, I think we saw that was partly about the leadership using a very ill-judged venue for some of its Christian outreach. But that, I think, is going to be a really interesting challenge for the Labour Party as it navigates a world in which one half of its core understandably has uh, a bunch of liberal principles which it holds dear, and the other half of its core has a bunch of religious principles which it holds dear. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Chris Stone, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you'd like to submit a question to the You Ask Us section, you can email one in to podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk. Please leave us a review and thanks so much for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search disorder wherever you get your podcasts.